May we and all beings see ourselves and others as the radiant, boundless beings that we are. May we and all beings cultivate a willingness to act without hesitation. And may we and all beings share ourselves completely with others. And good afternoon once more. Today we are going back to Vimalakirti's 10 by 10 foot room where he is lying on his sickbed and we are among the 64,000 guests somehow in this 10 by 10 foot room. Don't ask me how it works, it doesn't matter. But before we continue with that story, I'd like to give a very brief review of my talk from Saturday, because I've been told that sometimes my talks are hard to follow. So here's the quick recap. The theme of our session is what is a bodhisattva? or who is a bodhisattva, or what is the meaning of bodhisattva? A term we use often, but maybe don't talk about directly so much. And one way of answering these questions is to look to the sutras, and that's what I'm doing in my two talks for this sashin. In particular, looking at the Vimalakirti Sutra, which stars our dear friend, who seems to be everywhere at the same time, Vimalakirti. He's a layperson, just like us, and a bodhisattva, but a different kind of bodhisattva because he seems to reside in this dusty and topsy-turvy world. He doesn't dwell elsewhere, dwell elsewhere. Uh, like some of the bodhisattvas seem to. Manjushri comes to mind here. He's someone who does many wonderful deeds in service of, to his community, and based on our question and answer period from Saturday, perhaps deserves the title of not-so-good husband bodhisattva. <laughs> because he's always out taking care of others. He even goes into the casinos and the brothels and the bars to take care of people in there. All while his wife is at home. He can't seem to make it to dinner on time. But he's also sick. And what I wanted to do on Saturday was explore the sickness that Vimalakirti and presumably many bodhisattvas have. I called it a sickness of concern, a willingness to act immediately for those that they love, act without hesitation. We saw that the bodhisattva is sick because all beings are sick. 
and that the Bodhisattva stands in the kind of relationship to all beings that a parent does to its child. And once again, for all of you that are parents, you know that you act immediately and without hesitation when your child is not well, and you do anything to try and help them. You too are sick, even if you're not sick in the same way. And this is so because of the intimate relationship between the two of you. But I also said that this is not the whole story. There's another story, another part to the story. And it's what Vimalakirti says to his audience after he's been talking about his sickness. He says, the sicknesses of the bodhisattvas arise from great compassion. I am sick because all beings are sick, but I am also sick because of my great compassion. And it's this response to his guests who have come to check on him that I want to explore a little bit today. So we'll start, as seems appropriate, by asking the question, what is great compassion? During service today, we recited Tore Zenji's great compassion. And all of what we said there about great compassion is correct so far as I'm concerned, but we can add to it. There are other responses available to this question. What is great compassion? What is the great compassion of the Bodhisattva? And here's what Vimalakirti says. It is the giving of all accumulated roots of virtue to all living beings. Great compassion is the giving of all accumulated roots of virtue to all living beings. I'm not quite sure what this means. But that's okay. We're going to change the response just a little bit so that it reads different, but the spirit is retained. Here's another way of understanding Vimalakirti's response. Completely sharing all the good you do with everyone. What is great compassion? It is completely sharing all the good you do with everyone. That's a little bit easier to understand. There are many things that we could say about this response, but I want to focus on just one thing, one thing that stands out to me. And I don't know that I have one good word for it, but I have several okay ones. 
One way of putting it is what stands out to me is the indiscriminateness of the response. Completely share all the good that you do with everyone. I don't share all of it with Mado and only some of it with Georgie or only 30% with Daigen and 60% with Jerry and none of it with Brielle. I don't carve it up that way. Completely share all the good with everyone. If you don't like the word that I'm not even sure I can say twice, indiscriminateness, it's a mouthful. We could say freedom from prejudice or freedom from preference. Again, I don't favor one group or another, like one group more than another. I completely share everything with everyone. It's the openness and the generosity of this response that stands out to me so much. So the Bodhisattva acts without hesitation to relieve the suffering of all living beings with no preference for their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, their political party, their religious affiliation. All these ways in which we carve up the world, all these boxes that we put ourselves into and that others put us into and that we put others into as a way of separating and categorizing and dividing, none of it matters in a way, to the Bodhisattva. There is suffering. Here I go to take care of it. I don't care about the color of your skin, how you identify, who you sleep with, who you voted for, who you pray to. You are suffering, and I am here to help. It's kind of unsettling to think of somebody who has this kind of energy flowing in them, flowing through them. Can you imagine meeting somebody like that? Or pick your favorite or least favorite member of Congress. Can you imagine them meeting someone like this? I pay a lot of money to see that. It's tempting at this point to ask why this is what great compassion is. Why Vimalakirti, in response 
to the question, what is great compassion, says completely sharing all the good you do with everyone. But I'm not going to take up that question today. I don't care about that question today. And I don't care about it because of a story that Roshi told once. I don't remember when, and it doesn't matter. During a talk, Roshi was telling us about a common experience when new people show up here and they see us make prostrations before the Buddha and they see us light incense on the altar and they see us sit and face the wall. They want to know why we do these things. Why do you bow before the Buddha? Why do you light incense? Why do you face the wall? It's so pretty to look outside. And what Roshi told us is that a better question to ask, though these kinds of questions have their place in our practice, it is at times appropriate to ask why. A better question to ask is how. How do I bow before the Buddha? How do I make a prostration? How do I light incense? How do I sit facing the wall? How do I sit shikantaza? Better to ask how than ask why. So that's my question. How do I completely share all the good I do with everyone? Here's an answer. Not the only answer, but an answer. And it starts by considering how a bodhisattva views all living beings. This is a question that the audience puts to Vimalakirti as he's laying on his sickbed. And you may have noticed that for someone who's sick, he's doing a lot of teaching and a lot of talking. Maybe he's not really sick. Maybe this is all a ruse. Here is how a bodhisattva should regard all living beings. As a wise person regards the reflection of the moon in water, or as magicians regard people created by magic. A bodhisattva should regard them as being like a face in a mirror, like the water of a mirage, like the previous moment of a ball of foam like the appearance and disappearance of a bubble of water, like a flash of lightning, like the fifth great element, like the seventh sense medium, like the perception of color in one blind from birth, like the track of a bird in the sky, like the erection of a eunuch, like the pregnancy of a barren woman, 
like a fire burning without fuel. And there are many more responses given, but I've just picked my favorites. This is an interesting collection of images. Some of them seem to suggest that the Bodhisattva views all living beings as existing things, yet fleeting. A flash of lightning, a bubble in a stream, a previous moment of a ball of foam. They're there, just not for very long. Another group of them seem to suggest that the Bodhisattva regards all living beings as illusions. As magicians regard people created by magic. Or like a face in a mirror, or like the water of a mirage, or even the reflection of the moon in water. You can see something and there's some reason that it's there, but it's not really the thing you're looking at. The real thing is somewhere else, like the moon, like the face. And still other examples are, at least to this individual, quite troubling because they suggest that the Bodhisattva does not regard living beings as real things. The perception of color in one blind from birth. The track of a bird in the sky. The pregnancy of a barren woman. These things are not real. Fire burning without fuel. Not a real thing. So not only are these examples somewhat troubling, but they also don't quite seem to fit together either. And I think there's a reason for that. And the reason I'll suggest is that Dogen loves boats. And I know the timeline doesn't work here. The sutra was written before Dogen, Dogen's writing after the sutra, but Dogen loves boats. Dogen Zenji, the founder of our Soto Zen lineage, wrote a great deal, and the boat in the water is a frequent image for him used to make a point in various ways. And in the Genjo Koan, Dogen writes the following. I'm going to paraphrase it. If you are on a boat in the middle of the ocean and there's no land in sight, the ocean looks round. And it can't look any other way to you at that time. 
But the ocean is not a circle, and it's not a square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. It only looks as it does because of where you stand at this particular moment. And all things are like this. All things. Sometimes living beings to the Bodhisattva seem like things that exist and are yet fleeting, like a flash of lightning. Sometimes living beings seem to the Bodhisattva like illusions, shape-shifting images, like when you wake up quickly from an intense dream, there's still the remnants of it before you. Sometimes to the Bodhisattva, living beings just seem unreal. All of these ways in which it is described that the Bodhisattva regards living beings, I think are correct. They're just different ways of talking about one and the same thing. This kind of unrealness of living beings in the eyes of the Bodhisattva. When I had this thought, I was very pleased. Most of you know that I'm a Plato scholar by training. And sometimes people would ask me about something Plato believes. It always reminds me of the philosopher who was on a plane and the person sitting next to them said, what do you do? He said, oh, I'm a philosopher. I said, oh, what are some of your quotes? He said something, the person sitting next to him said, oh, that's a good one. I think people like this. They like uh, things they can stick on bumper stickers or on their social media feeds or something like that. And me having uh, a certain tendency about me would always say, well, one thing that Plato believes is that more things exist than are real. More things exist than are real. And I'm inclined to see what Vimalakirti is saying here in the same way. You and I exist, but we're just not real. I'll say more about what this means in a moment. But now another question arises. If living beings are ultimately unreal, how can the Bodhisattva possibly be moved by great compassion to serve them? Vimalakirti has an answer here too. Here's what he says. 
just as I have realized the Dharma, so I should teach it to living beings. Just as I have realized the Dharma, so I should teach it to living beings. And there was something I was going to say about that, but I had a thought this morning while sitting that seems better. So we're going to go with that instead. Here's how I understand this response, this answer to the question. If all living beings are, are regarded as unreal by the Bodhisattva, how are they moved to serve them? Most of you know that in the past, I had a history of substance abuse. And that these days I'm in recovery and happily so. I meant to look before my talk today how many days it's been. I forgot to do that. But we're something like almost 420 days sober. That's a wonderful thing for me. But during those years, when things were really bad, and I was engaged in a pretty determined way, even if slow, towards self-destruction, it was hard for me to see myself in any other way than an addict, than useless, than worthless, than a degenerate. That was my world. That was a set of constructions, a series of adjectives that I thought were the whole of who I was and I clung to them really tightly. And they kept me in a cycle of self-destructive behavior. At a certain point, though, I decided to reach out for help. And I was working with a couple of counselors, and I was working with a sponsor, and I started working with Mado too, all individuals who saw me as so much more than the story I was telling about myself. Some of those individuals saw that I was clinging to something that just wasn't real. And they knew that because they had been there themselves. Take my sponsor, who last year celebrated 34 years sober. He knows what it's like to be in that condition. He also knows that there's a freedom from it. And having realized that freedom is moved to share it with others. or take Roshi. 40 years of practice. She too has seen in her own way the unreality of these constructions that we cling to so tightly. 
and is moved by seeing them affecting others in such a way to try and help them. I see that you are sick and that you are suffering and I can do something about it because I have been there and I have made my way through it. I have realized the Dharma, I have realized the end of suffering, and I am now moved to share it with all living beings. This is how I understand what it is that Vimalakirti says in response to this question. We find ourselves in tiny little self-constructed prisons and bodhisattvas who break free don't just go on their merry way. They turn around and they see all living beings also stuck in their own little prisons. And they say, I'm not leaving without you too. You're all coming with us. It's this turn, this turn back to the world, this complicated, messy, dusty, dirty world that is a defining feature of the Bodhisattva. that I won't leave you all behind, that I won't escape this world without you too, because I've made this radical commitment to love you and all beings, no matter what. I will love and take care of all of you no matter what.